Chloe talked us into caves where we met our power animal. Mine was a penguin. So says Chuck Palahniuk of Fight Club, which we're talking about here today on Literary Guys. I'm author Zachary Kellyan. And I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. Thanks for joining us here on, what is this, our fourth book now? Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. We're, we're having brunch, too. This is a change of pace for us. Well, I... I you're letting the listeners in on all the secrets already here, but uh, yeah, it's it's brunch, but not because we necessarily wanted brunch. No, we requested a Bloody Mary, and uh, the Stardust Lounge has a fantastic proprietary Bloody Mary blend that we were excited to try, but they refused to serve us Bloody Marys in the evening, so we had to do this in the morning. Or at least after they open at 11.30. <laughs> it feels like the morning to me. I just woke up, so this feels pretty early for me. But no, Crystal was kind enough to kind of share her recipe with us. She is a fourth-generation master briner, so she has got her own ingredients that go into this. If you're drinking Bloody Marys along with us at home, it's not that hard. Just get an uh, ounce and a half of vodka. I recommend Zigzag Bloody Mary Mix. They're not a sponsor yet, but you can get that at you know your local grocery store for under 10 bucks. Throw a little Tabasco in there, some celery salt, you're good to go. Tabasco is also not a sponsor, but celery salt is. Correct? <laughs> the Celery Salt Commission is, yes. Okay, excellent. So I think we've got a great four episodes here discussing Fight Club because there is so much good material in here that really aligns with a lot of the conversations that we've started in the past few episodes. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean I like this book. Oh, gotcha. In fact, I quite disliked this book. Oh, okay. I think that it's easy to be angry. It is easy to use anger as a device in order to move ahead stories, particularly with male characters, and I feel like it's a bit of a cop-out. See, I don't think that's what he's doing here. Okay. so We've got a lot to talk about. We've got a lot to talk about. How do you feel about the nature of this podcast? We're breaking two of the rules already. We're talking about Bloody Marys. And we're talking about Bloody Marys. Okay. And that has nothing to do with Project Mayhem, which we will be getting to in, I believe, the third episode of this discussion. Just in time for Father's Day, Project Mayhem. Yeah, well said. I do find it fascinating that rule six of Fight Club is to not fight with shirts or shoes. So, right. you know, it's good. Like, you know, it's not nearly as often quoted as the rules one and two of Fight Club. They were ahead of their time. That is currently the rules of the UFC. True. UFC began with uh, shirts, shoes, whatever you wanted, and they've pretty much stripped it down to Fight Club only rules, although I do think they talk about it quite a bit. So since we've started talking about the book here, let's start with a quick look at the first half of the book. We're going to spend the first two episodes here talking about the first half and then the second two episodes talking about the second half. And so basically, what are some of the key things that happen here? Well, we have this main character, the narrator of the book, Mm -hmm. who starts off in this very insomniac state, who can't sleep, he is deeply troubled, and we have a number of really good scenes. In fact, some of the most compelling scenes of the entire book happen right away, where we see him going to support groups for various diseases Mm -hmm. and afflictions, and in these support groups, he's able to find solace and it helps him be in a place of comfort and i think it's helping his insomnia it, it, it's you know it's reminiscent of you you see things like um, the faces of death video series where people rent these videos and watch real footage of people being murdered or hit by trains or stuff like that i think 
I perceive it as this character's way of just reminding himself that he doesn't have it that bad. Even though he's kind of in these emotional doldrums, he still is reminded, hey, at least I don't have a brain parasite eating away at me. And it seems almost cathartic for him at that level. Indeed. And the quote that I opened the episode with is actually from the second chapter of the book talking about one of the meditation exercises that the narrator went through as part of this experience. Now, in what I think is one of the most humorous bits of wordplay that existed in this book, it happens very early on discussing what goes on in these support groups, which is the term therapeutic physical contact, Mm -hmm. which is wonderful foreshadowing to what comes later in the book because it is the complete opposite of the therapeutic physical contact that the narrator and also Tyler Durden, who we'll get to in a moment, have in their lives in which they create through the eponymous fight club. Or would it be titular fight club? Eponymous, yeah. Yeah, eponymous would mean it was named after a person. So it's not not Tyler's fight club. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But it's only titular if they're aware that they're in a book. Interesting. So, like, missed. <laughs> and that joke is for anyone over the age of 30 who actually bothered to play missed <laughs> for more than 10 minutes. Anyhow, so, so when you see these scenes, Zach, what comes to mind for you? Well, what, the, the thing that I was thinking about upon first reading this is, is this something that people actually do? Is there a whole subset of society who is almost addicted to these therapeutic group meetings and will specifically seek out group meetings wherein its members frequently pass away so that no one calls them out on their BS because there's a sense of anonymity there because the group kind of naturally rotates in and out every few weeks. I don't know. I, I, I'm sure that that must be based on something. Um, you know, Chuck Palahniuk, uh, as a writer, was involved in a lot of therapy groups that were tied into the writing community in Portland, Oregon. And so I think uh, he's probably drawing from that a little bit. But for me, the takeaway is, you know, I don't think men are great at sharing their emotions. Being able to share my emotions as freely as I do as a very emotional, passionate guy was a journey for me. I think I'm on a much healthier level for that now. But certainly almost in an opposite way of this book. You know, I was fighting a lot more as a young man because I didn't have a way to process my emotions. When I learned to process my emotions, sometimes a good hug and a, you know, a long meditation exercise could really help purge me of those. So it's interesting that they kind of take that the opposite way. This character, he feels like he's at his wit's end and stretching for anything by going to the support groups. But of course, it's just the beginning of his journey. And so I'd like to read a section from the afterword that I think really sums up where this is going after this point. On a plane back to Portland, an airline flight attendant leaned close and asked me to tell him the truth. His theory was that the book wasn't really about fighting at all. He insisted it was really about gay men watching one another fucking public steam baths. I told him, yeah, what the hell? And he gave me free drinks and the rest of the flight. That was from the, uh, I think, 10-year anniversary edition of uh, Fight Club, where is. Chuck is reminiscing about the fame and infamy and everything that it did and didn't do for his career. This was his first book, by the way. He had another book out with his publisher that was deemed too controversial. I did not know that. What was it about? Uh, it eventually did come out. I think it's, believe it's called Invisible Monsters. More messed up than this, even. But in his frustration of kind of having that book shelved for the time being, he wrote Fight Club, and I think he has a good perspective on it. You know, you listen to a lot of Chuck Palahniuk interviews. It's made him who he is. It's made him a, a name. But it's also the only book that he's known for, even though he's written some amazing other books. Uh, Invisible Monsters, Choke, among them. 
So I, I am curious how how much comments like that might indeed hurt him, um, if that's how everybody kind of views him. But for better or for worse, Fight Club's become a part of our cultural zeitgeist. With the movie, and then of course with the book, it really just, it's inescapable at this point. It is amazing how Fight Club just appears in so many bits of media. In fact, you and I were talking right, right before I hit the record button here that the TV show Ted Lasso, which takes place in England and was made now, what, 20 years after the film was and yep. even longer from the book. And here it is making a Fight Club joke. And it's still relevant, and it was actually quite funny. So <laughs> there is something about this material. It strikes a that, chord. Yeah, it absolutely mm-hmm. does. It doesn't go away. And I'm not sure anyone else has really done as good a job at it. It doesn't mean I like the book. Right. I still think that it's angry. And you were telling me that this started off as a short story. Yeah, if, you're, if you've read the book already or you are reading along with us, Chapter six is almost word for word the original short story. It was a short story published in the early 90s in a journal that's no longer in existence. And he kind of just fanned and padded the novel out from chapter six. Chapter six. And I think the things that come before it are the stronger part of the novel. But there's a lot of things that, again, particularly it just feels angry to me. Mm-hmm. And I think even more so in the second half of the book. Oh, I know sure. we're not talking as much about here. Let's get back to sort of the narrative. Or well, you made a, you made an interesting point that we got to talk about. As a gay man, do you think it is about men banging each other in steam rooms? I did not get that at all, but I did get something else. But I'm not going to talk about it here. Oh, not not on the podcast? No, I will be on my sister podcast, talking steam baths. <laughs> I imagine uh, Chuck Palahniuk would be a frequent contributor to that podcast. I don't know. Anyhow, let's get back to the story because it's told very much out of order. It actually opens up on this on this scene where it's very difficult to tell what's going on, which actually takes place right at the end of the chronological order of this. Uh, but we also find out about the narrator's condo blowing up. Mm-hmm. Which had to be tragic for you because as I was reading, rereading this for the podcast, there's a long list of designer furniture that is blown up in that apartment. And I can only imagine you knew what each and every one of those pieces of furniture were and probably owned some of them. Perhaps. Yeah, you know, I, to my recollection, I saw the movie 20 years ago. Uh, to my recollection, I think the movie opens in the same way. Uh, Tyler Durden's got the gun in his mouth. They're on top of the uh, building that's about to blow. So I believe it is bookended the same in the, both the movie and in the novel. I, I love the opening. I think this opening is one of the strongest openings we've read so far. If you want to talk about grabbing your attention, I mean, the opening lines of the book, I think, are a, an entire workshop on how to open a book in just one sentence. Give us a read. Tyler gets me a job as a waiter. After that, Tyler's pushing a gun in my mouth and saying, the first step to eternal life is you have to die. A lot of questions not being answered by that first sentence, but it, it got me reading and it got me excited to... Uh, kind of re-engage with uh, Polynex prose, which is, I, I feel, very singular to him. His style's different from anything we've read, probably closest to Hemingway-esque, but he, he does get into some really granular nitty detail about the making of soap or, you know, the different types of therapeutic exercises men might go through. So it's a, it's a meticulous book, but at the same time, it's also painting in very broad strokes. So it's an interesting, almost journalistic style. Well, if only Santiago had been as well prepared before he got in his boat as Tyler had been putting soap and making bombs, 
that, you know, maybe he would have brought that fish home at the end. Do you think Santiago and the little boy are on their way to starting a fight club? Is that the inevitable sequel? Yes. I I think that was pretty obvious, actually. Was that in doubt? Some tourists are going to get their pretty faces beaten in, I think, is the... uh, It's a callback to our first episode. Currently available on (laughs) where all podcasts are streamed. So in the next few chapters, we get sort of a melange of scenes that have to do with working in the hotel jobs, being a projectionist, which is Tyler's job, which he seems to be able to do. Uh, But also it does have some weird parallels to the insomnia that, that we hear about from the narrator. And also it talks about the first fight club and how it very quickly went from a bar fight Mm-hmm. between two guys who had never been in a fight before, if I if I remember this correctly, right. to something which had rules and structure and all sorts of things around it and, and just quickly took off in popularity. Yeah, it's an interesting organic process. You know, we, we are introduced to this mysterious enigmatic figure of Tyler Durden, uh, who I bet the beginning kind of just seems like a merry prankster, a juvenile 12-year-old uh, pissing in soup and splicing in porno into film reel. Uh, but it quickly escalates beyond that. And mm-hmm. it, like you said, it's that fight in the restaurant. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. You know, did, did you, uh, as someone who I am, believe I've known you long enough to say you've not been in a physical fist fight, is that true? Well, in an earlier episode, I may have said that I had been in a fight, but... I think for the sake of this episode, let's be pretty honest and say that outside of a karate dojo, the answer is no. And I have been in many fights. The the high school that both Gordon and I attended, I don't know if you even know this, I almost got expelled from fighting. What, we went to the same high school? Yeah. (laughs) I almost got expelled from our high school for fighting, probably before we were friends. I was a little rougher around the edges then. I wasn't the other person, right? You were not the other person. The other person turned out to be, spoiler, a figment of my imagination. Interesting. No, uh, just, you know, I, I think... When you are a young boy uh, growing up in a city environment and you don't necessarily have a lot of direction from other males in terms of how to process emotion, the end result of all that bottled up emotion is almost always violence or aggression or lashing out in some way. So the thing that really strikes me about this scene when they're at this restaurant, I think it's like an Applebee's or something like that, right? Is it? I I don't even remember. I don't know. It's something super innocuous. That's how I picture it in my head anyways, is Tyler wants a favor. He's asking a favor from our narrator. And he says, "I, I want you to hit me as hard as you can. There is something you hear boxers talk about this. You hear UFC fighters talk about this. In my own experience of fighting, there is something cathartic and almost freeing about getting punched in the face. There's kind of that scary moment of it hurting and a big burly guy attacking you or what have you. But there's also some clarity that comes from it. It kind of like is a splash of cold water in the morning or, you know, a nice jolt of caffeine. It just makes you feel a little bit alive. And what I took from that scene, and I was wondering if someone who is not as akin and uh, familiar with fighting as, as you, if you got the same thing even, is I just saw these as two guys who didn't feel alive anymore. And this was the last ditch effort to feel something. Oh, I totally. I totally got that. I I totally got the, I'm not feeling anything anymore. And that sort of the death of sensation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and there's a lot of different things that we can look at from that. And I think in the next episode, we're going to talk about some of the themes of consumerism and how Polinick paints consumerism as the, the underlying cause, if you will, of this need, this emptiness that seems to exist. 
But I think what you just said, that Paulinek is absolutely going for that vibe. And there's a quote, and this actually occurs later on in the novel, but I think it speaks really to what he sees as the positive benefits of being in a fight, or more specifically going to an evening Mm -hmm. at Fight Club. Even a week after Fight Club, you've got no problem driving inside the speed limit. Maybe you're passing black shit, internal injuries for two days, but you are so cool. Other cars drive around you. Cars tailgate. You get the finger from other drivers. Total strangers hate you. (laughs) It's absolutely nothing personal. After Fight Club, you're so relaxed you just cannot care. You don't even turn the radio on. Maybe your ribs stab along a hairline fracture every time you take a breath. Cars behind you blink their lights. The sun is going down, orange and gold. How can you not like this book? It's it, it really comes down to like the second half of the book where it yeah. just feels like okay, now we were angry before, but man, here comes more anger, and it's not even about focus. And actually, the early part of the book is about internal facing. Yes. It's about internal yep, right. facing, and I think you actually hit onto a good point with this. Like, how did it affect the people? It's not about people who are not in Fight Club. They are not dragging other people into this. They're sort of identifying people who have a need, mm-hmm. have the same emptiness in them, and offering this to them. But they're not bringing or affecting the world outside of the Fight Club that they create. In fact, it even is mentioned that Fight Club does not exist outside of the hours of Fight Club that it cannot and therefore it is a self-contained entity and it is there for these characters to work out their anger and aggression right you have the the narrator who is processing his emotions his displeasure with life very internally you know just not even speaking up at some of these group meetings just waiting for everybody to get together at the end and hug and cry and that's where he gets his catharsis then mysteriously tyler durden shows up and is just kind of tangentially involved in this guy's life for a few chapters. And so that's obviously the beginning of the inward focus to the outward focus until towards the middle where Tyler and the main character, the narrator, are doing everything together and with each other every step of the way towards the end of the novel when then Tyler's operating almost completely autonomously. We're really seeing a separation of the self in this. Spoiler alert if you haven't read the ending. But I think that that's, to me, such a brilliant way of kind of introducing this concept. I knew from the movie, obviously, and I have read the book in the past, so I knew the big twist at the end. What, the Tyler can see dead people? Correct. It was so enjoyable going back for this podcast and rereading it because Chuck Palahniuk is basically beating you over the head with this fact. How many times does he have to say Tyler just appeared there suddenly mm-hmm. and, you know, no one ever sees Tyler and our narrator in at, together at the same time. Although he does point out that no one sees Tyler and Marla together at the same time as well. Also and, he, and he posits that they may be the same person. We'll talk about Marla next time. And so I think that there's a really interesting extrapolation there. I don't know enough about psychology to really get into how accurate that might or might not be, but I think it's a fun literary device. And I think I could probably get behind what you're saying. Towards the middle of the book, there tends to be a little padding. We kind of repeat a few things, and it becomes a little cyclical in the context of the entire novel. But, uh, you know, for me, I think there's some real fun pop armchair psychology at play here that I really enjoy. Oh, this is definitely armchair psychology. 
And it's not to say that this isn't rooted in some truth. There's, there's a lot of truth here. It's actually interesting that Fight Club exists in a world where at least it's something. I see a lot of guys who just don't have any outlet for this pent-up anger you know you were talking about before and have just accepted the role of just being a cog in the machine i do not think that we are meant to be a cog in the machine no absolutely and certainly that is how these characters are feeling both in 1996 when this novel was written and i think men even more today in 2021 are feeling that way and i what i really like about this book is that it is not equating, to me anyways, masculinity with winning a fight. There doesn't seem to be any judgment within Fight Club in terms of who is the victor, who taps out first. There doesn't seem to be any hierarchy there. You know, Tyler Durden gets beat up, the narrator gets beat up. I think it's really interesting that it's the fight itself that makes them men. And that, to me, is something that I can really appreciate and relate to. I think that there are multiple rules in the Fight Club rule book I guess that speak to that number seven is the fights go on as long as they have to Mm -hmm. not until someone wins not until there is a clear victor and it it says when someone says stop or taps out or goes limp the fight is over Mm -hmm. none of the rules are actually about who wins no and I, I, I think that that is if fight club were a thing the thing that would probably attract me to it you know I'm not I'm not gonna win every fight I'm in but man, there's something about said about feeling alive and engaging with another man at that level of physicality. I I don't want to sound like a sociopath, but it's just about being honest in terms of masculinity. I would say most of my male friends I've gotten in fistfights with. You know, a lot of them I've known for years. We were less mature. Maybe drinking was involved. I'm still friends with all of them. I've never gotten a physical fight with anybody who that ended the friendship, except for you. I don't think you and I have ever gotten. We've gotten maybe some heated verbal arguments, but yeah, no, I we've never gotten into. We've it. never gotten physical, and I think the way I relate to the world in a physical sense. I'm not saying that this is a good thing about masculinity. It might indeed be very toxic, but it's something that's addressed here. It's tough for me to relate to somebody who doesn't have as physical of a relationship to the world as I do. And I think you you and I have been friends for 20 years, 25 years now. That's why we're friends is because we have that familiarity. I find you more relatable now than I ever did in high school because you're much more of an athlete now. You know, you're part of rec football leagues. You're really getting out there and engaging in the world in a physical sense. And to me, that is something that I relate to more than the the cinephile that you were in uh, high school. And still just am. Kind of, yeah, still, still are. But, you know, I think that you've got that more rounded sense of what traditional masculinity is in my mind. Now, that's completely BS. Obviously, you're your own man, and I shouldn't need to know that you're out playing sports to relate to you. But there's something to that. There's something about men and physicality that seems inexorable to me. Well, I think that is a great point to wrap up this first episode of Fight Club on. I think there's a lot more of this discussion ahead, a lot of good topics. And, oh, actually, have we uh, checked in with our sponsor here? I know they're um, at least apparently giving us some money. You're not seeing it, it but yes, we're we're making some decent money. I'm happy behind the scenes you're making that happen. All right, here's the copy. Are you a man dealing with existential ennui in the modern era? Are you seeking catharsis but are generally ambivalent about how you receive it? Joe Everyman's Therapeutic Support Group Matchmaking Service. We match you with a disease, condition, or addiction that best mirrors the sadness of your soul. Feeling a sense of emasculation in a world that has passed you by but are otherwise in perfect health? Testicular cancer may be the support group for you. 
Has an unexplainable sense of dread infused you with the certainty that death is stalking you from the shadows, but you have no medical diagnosis to back that up? Might we recommend Brain Parasites? A support group where everyone will eventually die or your money back. Joe Everyman's Therapeutic Support Group Matchmaking Service. Just a nod, keep a low profile, drink your coffee, and we'll take care of the rest. So I assume this is a fully anonymized service, like... Are they trained therapists? What's the uh, what's the deal there? I think they're just trolling church basements on weekends, finding the support groups, and then pointing you to them. I don't know how they make the money. Yeah, I was just going to say, what's the profit model on that? You know, you would look at it like that. I think the profit model is finding out a little bit more about yourself and the journey of self-discovery, Dr. McCallum. Well, th- this sounds almost as well thought through as the shark fin oil. <laughs> we take the sponsors we can get, my friend. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this. I think there's a lot more that we can absolutely dive into with Fight Club. You're right. It's not a traditional narrative in a sense. There's a lot of jumping around. So I think just you and I just digging into some of the themes that Chuck Palahniuk's bringing up is going to make for a good three more episodes. Excellent. Well, for our listeners, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening. And if you consider it please leave a review tell us what you're thinking we appreciate it yeah just from an algorithm standpoint it can be a negative review we'll take anything we are on twitter at literary guys and i'm also on twitter at gordon mccallan you can find me at zach kellyan and you can go to visit us at uh, literaryguys.com so thank you for listening and this is literary guys signing off